Well, it's a little bit later in the week than we're used to uh, recording, but welcome back to the Fenway Rundown Mass Lives Red Sox podcast. I'm Chris Cotillo, your host. Hate to bring up excuses for why this is not running on Tuesday or Thursday like we've been doing recently, but when the Red Sox dropped the biggest deal in franchise history, there are stories to be written, and hey, uh, we wrote them up on Mass Live. If you've been under a rock, we're here to tell you that Rafael Devers has signed an 11-year, $331 million extension with the Red Sox. Biggest contract in franchise history, one of the biggest in baseball history. The Red Sox have their cornerstone. They have their star locked in. Many angles to get to, and to get to all of them, we welcome Sean McAdam, longtime Red Sox beat writer, now with Boston Sports Journal, as he's been for the past four or five years. Um, we get into really kind of all the different pieces of this Devers thing, what it means for Heim Bloom, John Henry, the roster going forward. Then we answer the ultimate question, what happens next? And are the Red Sox, after this Devers deal, able to look back and say, we've had a successful offseason? Sean doesn't seem to think so. Um, I think the story's yet to be told a little bit. So appreciate you tuning in. Appreciate Sean for coming on. Uh, I know Red Sox fans are in a celebratory mood this week, so hopefully you can end it by enjoying the show. We are back here with Boston Sports Journal's Sean McAdam. Uh, as we everybody knows by now, uh, I guess some of the biggest Red Sox news in recent memory, definitely since I've been on the beat, definitely the biggest deal that's gone down in terms of money. Uh, in Red Sox history. I mean, there's, there's really no other way to put it other than this is a gigantic moment in Red Sox history. Um, a gigantic deal for the future of the organization. So Sean, uh, I know we talked throughout the day, Wednesday, when this was breaking and we talked about, is this really happening? And then kind of our reactions to it afterwards. But what, uh, what was your reaction when you saw the news Devers back 13 years, 331 million? Yeah, definitely a surprise, Chris, because let's face it. Uh, people are, were entitled to be cynical when it came to the Red Sox ability to pull off a deal of this magnitude. Uh, it was worth asking given their track record the last few years, whether they had the stomach and the appetite to give out the kind of market rate deal that you knew it was going to take to retain somebody of Devers caliber. Um, when they whiffed so badly on Bogarts, uh, falling, you know, 110 million plus shy of what he got from the Padres. Ultimately, uh, it was certainly worth asking, uh, was the same scenario going to play out for Devers? I think ultimately what won the day in terms of getting the deal done is that uh, is age. Uh, the fact that Devers just turned 36, uh, that they can get this 11-year deal done and have him still be in his mid-30s when it's complete. Uh, that's kind of in contrast to some of the bigger deals we've seen across the industry over the last six months, where guys are be being given uh, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13-year deals that take them to 40. I think the Red Sox, it's clear, were far more comfortable getting a guy like Devers more toward the prime of his career. I mean, he's got four more years to play as a 20-year-old. Um, that's something that Bogarts obviously did not have, having turned 30 himself last October. Um, I, I thought, you know, uh, you and I have talked, I, I think the franchise's credibility was on the line here. If they had let a third straight homegrown superstar leave because of salary, um, it, it really would have damaged them with the fan base within the industry, I think they understood 
the gravity of that and the ability to get him tied up but still not have him play into his late 30s and even to age 40 made this a little easier to come together, but still a, a surprise nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I I see that, and I see, you know, surprise based on recent precedent, surprise based on when it happened. I don't think we had January 4th as the date. I've been saying right along, spring training, late January, whatever. Um, but going back a ways, I think we had this discussion on the show, I think early in the season, that ultimately I think we were both of the mind that this was going to get done at some point. Were there Was there doubt kind of sown in your mind once Bogart didn't get done on this, or to me, it made it seem like, all right, they just whiffed on Mookie. They whiffed on Xander. This is now going to happen more. I think it's more likely than ever. That's how I viewed it. And, and in that realm, I guess in that way, I don't think I was that shocked. Yeah. Well, I mean, it could go two ways, right? You can look at the fact that they whiffed so badly on the first two and ask, well, what's going to be different this time? Or you can look at it another way and say, well, because they whiffed so badly on the last two, and knowing what was on the line, uh, the urgency to get this done was amped up even greater, and they had no margin for error here. They knew uh, that fans were upset about Bogarts leaving, although, you know, let, let's be clear, very, very few fans would have advocated for them to match San Diego's deal, but we all agree, I think, that the mistake came earlier in the negotiations uh, last spring training. Right. when they put a paltry offer on the table for Bogarts and ended up insulting him more than making any progress. Uh, so there's two ways of looking at it. Are, are you looking at past performance to predict what's going to happen? Or are you looking at past performance and saying, okay, now they're on the clock and they've got to make up for it. Turns out it was the latter. There's a lot of storylines when it comes to this. I think the big one is they got it done, right? That's been a concern for fans, been a concern for anybody who follows the team. They actually, you know, did it. They got it done. I think that's headline number one. Headline number two to me, and this has kind of become clear as, as we've gotten a couple of days away from this, is they not just got it done, or they didn't just get it done, but they, I think in my estimation, you know, got a good deal here, or one that, you know, is not um, a franchise-ruining deal potentially. And, and we were texting Wednesday when this stuff was starting to come out, and I think your, your comment back to me when I said, oh, it looks like 13 for 31 was I would do that. And I think I said, it kind of makes me think this might not be true because I'm not sure that Rafi would want to take that. And so now the fact that it got done, I mean, it kind of shows that not by any means team friendly when you go to 331 million, but AAV term, no opt-outs. He's a free agent after 36. I think it's a good looking deal from the Red Sox. And, and I think you share that too. Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I was frankly surprised that the AAV ended up coming under $31 million. I thought for sure, uh, again, looking at some of the factors here, that Devers is just 26. You don't often see free agents come up that early. The fact that he debuted at age 20 uh, led that to be the case. And remember, Bogarts was already halfway through an extension when his next time up for free agency arrived. So that's a different case. But uh, to secure a player of Devers's talent uh, at his age and to not even get to 31 million on the AAV is, um, you know, uh, not that we're rooting for either side here. And as you noted, uh, a third of a billion dollars is a third of a billion dollars. But when you examine it more closely, uh, I think the Red Sox did pretty well for themselves. Uh, I thought for sure this was going to end up being closer 
to you know 34, maybe even 35 million on the AAV. When you look at where others have gone this offseason, whether it be Turner or Correa's two deals, maybe mm-hmm. and counting, um, yeah. you know they they uh, they did pretty well to keep it to where they did, and I suspect that's what made it a little more tenable for them to get this done at this point. And I think like if a couple of things I just mentioned, but they also won in the margins. Like, you know, people see the years and they see the number and that's what the focus is on. But that opt out, you know, it's always like, Oh, there's an opt out. And then you forget about it for a few years. And then it looms large when in Xander Bogart's case, it comes up or, um, you know, in the case of like Correa this year, a lot of guys, I mean, they're, they're so common in the game uh, for him not to have one. Like he's locked in for those 11 years. No, no trade clause for the first five years of that deal. Obviously the 10 and five rights are, are a different, animal and they'll come into effect but the red sox kind of won the margins i think too um which i think should definitely be something that we factor in Uh, yeah not not having the opt-out hanging over your your head as a franchise as you point out is is a huge win for the red sox because in those cases first of all how many big time free agents with opt-outs don't opt out and if they don't you have to be chris sale yeah if they don't opt out uh, it's usually because of underperformance mm-hmm. and you wouldn't, you know, uh, Eric Hosmer is another example, one that passed through here briefly and obviously yeah. not a contract given by the Red Sox. But uh, if if your player doesn't opt out, it probably means you overpaid and you're not getting the performance you expected. Either way, uh, it, it continues to mystify me why opt outs are um, have been adapted uh, by so many teams. I understand it becomes a separator. If you've got three or four teams in on the one free agent and one team buckles and says, okay, we'll give an opt out after three or four years, uh, that often wins the day and you have to do it in a competitive marketplace, but it, it's nothing but bad news. There's no way the team wins. If the player doesn't opt out, it's because he's not performing up to expectations and knows he can't get better. Uh, in terms of outside offers. And if he does opt out, you risk losing him after two, three, four seasons, whatever the language is. And definitely not something the Red Sox have been averse to. I mean, kind of quietly. Obviously, the Bogarts, one we all know about, Sale had the opt out. J.D. Martinez had three in his deal. Trevor Story even has one in his deal. I know it's a little different because they can pick up an option to get rid of it. But, you know, for a, a deal to be this clean, so to speak, I think, to me, was one of the more surprising aspects. Other yeah. storylines here, the Heimbloom legacy angle is the one I took in the, on the day after, um, you know, uh, in the words of our friend Rob Bradford, that story is yet to be told, as he always says on everything, in terms of Heim's uh, entire legacy here. So far, it's two last place finishes, uh, the one that let Bogarts get away, the one that pulled the trigger, but ultimately I don't think let Betts get away, and now the one who has locked up Rafael Devers. To me, as I wrote yesterday, it comes down to, the fact that Heim Bloom was at the end of the day willing to do something that probably made him uncomfortable considering his roots in Tampa, considering, you know, how he was, I guess, raised in the game and, and how he's known how to do business. And it showed that, you know, like he's been saying for a while, he's not averse to this type of thing. It's just, they haven't been in a position to do it. Uh, the Bogarts thing would suggest that he's averse to, you know, some pieces of it, you know, you can talk about the bets and, and do that revisionist history all day, but um, to me, this showed that, you know, either he's he's willing to, you know, go out of his comfort level if he thinks it's for the right player or 
the pressure starting to mount. I think there's probably a little bit of both, but uh, the fact that he was willing to, at the end of the day, say, all right, we'll sign off on this, which obviously he has to do ownership playing a big role was, was not a small piece of this in my mind. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, certainly Bloom's tenure would have been threatened if this had happened a third time on his watch. And as you alluded, you know, the Mookie thing was probably too far down the road to stop by the time he was brought in. They had failed numerous times to get him extended. They were facing the probability that he was going to leave as a free agent and made the decision to get, you know, 50 cents, 60 cents on the dollar, however you want to phrase that deal in retrospect. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, stepping up to the plate and getting Devers done buys Bloom some additional time. Ultimately, I think, uh, you know, his future, uh, his job security, his legacy, however you want to quantify it, is going to be uh, seen through the prism of what do the 2023 Red Sox do on the field? Are they mm-hmm. uh, legitimate playoff contenders? Are they getting themselves out of the basement in the division? All of that is yet to play out. And, you know, God knows that a lot can happen between now and October in terms of performance and injuries and roster moves and everything else. But he, at the very least, he's bought himself some time and I think kind of called off the dogs for people who are ready to, you know, storm Fenway with pitchforks and and torches not long ago after Bogarts left um, by securing Devers to the deal he did. Um, He kind of quells some of that unrest, at least for the time being. How uncomfortable do you think he is in giving out $331 million? I, I think, I don't know that there's an executive that isn't uncomfortable doing that for a deal that magnitude. We know that, and, and again, I get back to Devers's age. Uh, when you look at some of the deals that have been signed, whether it's Turner or Bogarts or Judge, I think the majority of these deals get done with the full understanding by the team that they're going to get porked at the end of these deals, that there's no way the players are going to perform at the level that was expected of them when they signed. And you know that going in, it's not a big surprise that you're not going to get return on your investment for players at 38, 39, 40 years old. Mm -hmm. But uh, the fact that he was able to, uh, you know, construct a deal that has Devers, you know, Finishing that final season, regular season anyway, it's still at 36, um, makes it less of a risk. But still, we're talking about a third of a billion dollars. I don't care, um, you know, if it's Mike Trout or Julio Rodriguez or however old or good the player is, there's a lot of risk here. But, um, you know, given the alternatives and given the scenario, it was a move they had to make. So, yes, some discomfort with that bigger risk but not as good might be for others. There's the, the public pressure thing, I think has been a, a, a storyline here. And you alluded to it a little bit there with Bloom. Uh, as, as I said uh, earlier this week to you off air, I don't think that John Henry heard the booze at the Winter Classic on Monday and ultimately was like, well, that's the last straw. I have to go sign this guy. But these guys are aware of, of what's said about them. They're aware of their reputation. They're aware of all that stuff. How much do you think the narrative, the pressure shaped this deal ultimately? Well, I, I think it's fair to say that this is a PR conscious uh, ownership group. 
They don't always act in accordance with that. Uh, you would think that they would be a little bit better in reading the tea leaves and understanding the frustration and even the outright anger that the fan base held against the franchise. And that was manifested at the Winter Classic mm-hmm. with Henry's greeting. Um, you and I know, and so do most fans, that John is not the most visible presence anymore, that when he's at the ballpark, uh, even with the access that we have, we don't run into him. So in that case, he's fairly um, immune to some of the negative reaction. But we're talking about a man that owns a newspaper in town that that spends a good deal of time in and around Boston. He has to know, uh, even if you're trying to avoid it, he has to know uh, the kind of negative sentiment that had been directed toward the team over the last couple of months, not only because they finished last for the second time in three years and sixth time in the last 11, but because they let a very popular player go and seemingly did not make a whole lot of effort to retain him. Mm-hmm. You mix all those things together, and that's a pretty potent um, brew, and it's impossible to ignore uh, the fact that the Red Sox saw a dip in attendance last year, the fact that Nesson ratings were down. Ultimately, and this is not meant as a criticism, these guys are capitalists and businessmen first. They may be fans, and I have no doubt that John Henry uh, would prefer the Red Sox to be successful every year. I don't think you get into that kind of ownership business without having a fan element in your in your makeup. And we know he, he likes or loves the game. And uh, look, nobody wants to piss off the customer base on an annual basis. That's simply bad business. It's bad capitalism. So I, I think he understood that there was, to put it politely, unrest among the fans. Um, was it a contributing factor? I, I have a hard time, as you and I discussed yesterday. Uh, it's not like uh, he picked up the phone after the Winter Classic and told Bloom, hey, um, I, I got a near full day. Let's get this done. Uh, that's not how these things work. Uh, I, I'm sure the talks had been ongoing, as has been reported, for weeks, maybe even months. Um, did it deliver a little bit of urgency, perhaps, or nudge things forward or help break a logjam in the negotiations by Henry giving a green light to a better offer? Uh, we can't rule that out. But what is the, was it the driving factor? Uh, probably not. And one thing and one moment that uh, I think, you know, is interesting when you look back at the last year, uh, there was a, a moment where John Henry was in the press box and there was a day in spring training. And, and you know this much better than I do after only covering the team for a few years. You know, you've covered them for decades. And, you know, the, the press corps for many reasons, right? Media, uh, the, the business uh, our business plus you know i think you know how how uh places cover things the core thin- thinned out a little bit and john was wondering you know where did everybody go where's everybody that usually or has covered the team for a while so um that's something that i think they are paying attention to and um as much as people think that he's in hiding which again it's totally right for them to think that because he never speaks and, and we never get to see him or hear from him um you know he is still paying attention to what extent um, I think would be cleared up if he were to come out and, and actually talk to us. Yeah. I, I, I don't understand. I mean, I do, uh, you know, in the literal sense, understand his reluctance to engage with us. Um, 
I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that John is not comfortable in those circumstances. He's a fairly private guy, quiet guy. Um, but the fact remains that when you are the principal owner of one of the flagship franchises in all of North American sports and a institution that the owner himself has described as a civic trust and a public trust, then some amount of public engagement goes with that job title. Can't make him talk to us, can't make him answer our questions. Uh, there's nothing that says that he has to do any of that. I frankly think it's bad business, Hannah. I think, you know, were I to be advising John Henry, and that's a funny thing on the face of it, um, mm -hmm. nobody has asked me, but I would point out to him, uh, you are the principal owner of a team that has won four championships in the last 20 years after having gone 0 for 86 in the previous nine decades, and yet you remain manifestly unpopular among the right. fan base. What's wrong with this picture? And I think what's wrong with it is that they have, uh, at the very least, done a very poor job in public relations. I, I think that, you know, when you look at the Patriots and how uh, out front Robert Kraft is on a lot of issues, whether they be philanthropic or just sort of anecdotal, uh, Robert Kraft is visible in the community. And I think uh, it reinforces the notion that despite the fact that he's a billionaire, as is John Henry, uh, that he is a fan of the team. I, I think John's uh, intransigence and lack of visibility suggests that he doesn't care. And I think you and I know that's not true, but it, it's the public perception. And the way to change that is to get out there and get ahead of things. And for whatever reason, he's decided not to do it. And I think it's to his detriment. Do you think he will be uh, up there when they announce Raphael Devers' extension? I can almost guarantee he will not. Well, it's good news. So if there's ever a time, maybe this is it. But I would, yeah. I would well, I mean, you and I know that the last time he sat in such a forum was the the day after the Mookie Betts trade, and that is right. almost three years ago now. Uh, so maybe there's some, um, maybe you know, may, maybe I'll be proven wrong. I, I suspect that we will see. Uh, Haim and Sam Kennedy and Rafi and maybe the manager, but I'd be very surprised to see ownership represented. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, I think, you know, we talked about some of the aspects of the Devers deal. One of them that is still a little bit up in the air as we record this on Friday morning, but uh, I think I have a feeling on how the Red Sox are leaning. Complicated. We won't get into all of it. Uh, we got into all of it on the site at Mass Live, but um, the CBT hit for this year in 2023 uh, based on how they structure it, they could structure it as an 11-year deal where the CBT hit is $30 million for this year or a one-year deal, which they already agreed to, for $17.5 million for this year, and then a 10-year deal at 313.5. Obviously, that comes with a little higher CBT hit over those 10 years, but gives you room to spend uh, this year. The feeling I get is that they are going to keep that at 17 and a half this year because that gives them you know room to spend. It gives them you know almost... Uh, uh, I think, you know, somewhere in the 15 to $20 million range to keep improving the club. Um, so assuming that's the course it goes and they have that room and not saying they won't go over, but they have that room to spend. What do you think is next with a lot of the holes plugged, uh, you know, Devers in tow now for more than a decade. I know there's a certain 
maybe one for one trade with uh, Xander Bogart's new club that you would be a, a large fan of happening. But um, what would you do next if you're Heimblum? Well, first of all, as it relates to payroll, I'm not sure that there's much that they could do to get even close to that first threshold. Um, you know, regardless of how they structure this, there's not a lot out there in terms of uh, free agents. I mean, if they were to go to, um, you know, an Elvis Andrus or a Jose Iglesias as their short-term shortstop solution, uh, that would, both of those would be very affordable deals. Certainly, you know, well under 10 million, you know, you're talking about a, maybe a couple of million for Iglesias and a little more for Andrus. Uh, I don't think that we're going to see them do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and even if they leave themselves with whatever, 10, $15 million under the first threshold at the deadline, I mean, how much money are you going to take on for two months, you know, mm-hmm. to, to hit that number, you'd have to be taking on a massive deal to have it be a third of that season salary, getting you over the 232 or 233 CBT threshold. But, uh, you know, that's all to be determined going forward. Yeah, the deal I think the Red Sox should make, and I think it's one they probably could, uh, is to go out and get uh, Hassan Kim from the San Diego Padres, who irony alert, is being moved off of shortstop because of the arrival of Xander Bogarts. Uh, There's some talk of putting him at second and then moving Jake Cronenworth to first. Uh, But the Padres, according to a reporting by The Athletic in San Diego, are open to uh, not only moving uh, Grisham, their center fielder, but Kim, their infielder. And I think he lines up as the perfect bridge um, for the Red Sox to have somebody uh, like Marcelo Meyer, ready to go in a couple of years at, say, uh, 2025, uh, give him two more years of development. As it happens, Kim is under control for two more seasons. And the deal I would propose would be to move Tanner Houck for him. Um, you know, it seems odd that a team that has had so much difficulty developing quality pitching, and particularly uh, quality starting pitching in its own ranks, and I, I realize that Houck is done more in the bullpen than in the rotation. uh, And he could serve in either role this year going Mm -hmm. forward. Um, But I think giving up Hauk uh, and solving your shortstop problem, Kim would be a plus defender, if not a plus plus defender at the position. So he gives you a terrific defense up the middle to keep story at second, where you don't have to rely on that arm and whatever issues might be at work there. You keep Kike Hernandez in center field and all of a sudden, up the middle, you're very strong defensively. Kim is not going to replace Xander Bogarts from an offensive standpoint. He is nowhere near the you know 290 plus career hitter that Bogarts has been. But uh, I think in that ballpark, he could get you 15 to 18 home runs, uh, come up with some big hits, um, and and be a you know lower third of the order guy that can, can that can contribute. But the the main attraction are it is two things. The way it lines lines up uh, for the Red Sox to, you know, replace him with a highly valued prospect in two years. Uh, he takes care of shortstop not only for 23, but also for 24. It's a reasonable financial commitment and the outstanding defense that he would provide. San Diego is known to be looking for some pitching. I think it makes a lot of sense whether it happens or not, who knows, but I, I think it would be 
you know, the final move they could make uh, in the next five weeks before spring training to make this team more competitive. And then you're really looking at, you know, adding around the fringes, bringing maybe another lefty reliever in or some, some depth uh, at a couple of positions. But if you get yourself a starting shortstop like that, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, the best case scenario obviously would have been retaining Bogarts. But I, I think this is given the landscape and what else is out there in terms of their options at short or second or center. I think that's the best move they could make. Yeah, no, that one's one that makes sense. Obviously, there's rumors there. There's rumors with the Marlins for uh, Miguel Rojas and Joey Wendell and a couple of their pieces, which, um, you know, I think you threw some cold water on the idea of a Costas trade there this week. But there are some pieces going both ways that seem to fit with Miami as well. Yeah, I mean, there, look, there's a lot of starting pitching there that the Marlins have to offer. They're one of the few teams uh, that could offer, you know, perhaps as many as four different starters uh, when you think about um, Jesus Lazardo, uh, when you think about um, uh, Lopez, when you think about, uh, who am I missing here? Rogers, Rogers. the lefty, yeah. um, and Edward Cabrera. I mean, you know, how many teams could give you starters in their 20s that could reasonably slot in uh, as a number three or maybe even a number two in some cases? But uh, the Marlins want immediate help. Um, and they want a big bat. And to me, uh, I see almost no circumstances under which the Red Sox would surrender Casas. So we, we know that the Marlins are not going to give up uh, Alcantara. Um, he's their ace. Uh, that would be something the Red Sox would have to entertain, if even if it cost them Casas. Um, right. but, but I would ask, you know, for all the people saying, well, do it. Okay, who's your first baseman? You know, mm-hmm. uh, Travis you know, Shaw. Gonna, uh, well, yeah, my point exactly mm-hmm. that there aren't a lot of options there internally or on the free agent market. Uh, you know, unless you want to make Justin Turner your everyday first baseman, I suppose he could do it, but then who's your DH? Uh, there, there just doesn't seem to Grab be. And, and that's that aside, you know, you, you, this is a guy that, um, you know, they have uh, been grooming for some time to be their first baseman and middle of the order run producer for a long, long time. They love his plate discipline. They love his defensive ability. They love his ability to get on base, to go the other way in Fenway and pepper that wall with a lot of doubles. Um, You know, it's not a stretch to say that Casas has star potential, not not proven, but star potential. Um, I, I find it hard to think that they would surrender that, even if it addressed a need. And um, I, I think you could look at the rotation and say that uh, while it, it may not uh, include anything top-heavy in terms of a legitimate number one, depending on what we get out of Chris Sale going forward, um, there is at least some depth there for the first time in a long time. You know, when you start looking at uh, Bayo and uh, Pavetta and Paxton and Whitlock, uh, some of the, and, and of course, Corey Kluber, I mean, they really have six legitimate starters going in. If everybody's mm-hmm. healthy, a big, if given the injury history of both Paxton and sale, but, um, you can paint a scenario where they actually have not only a, a deep rotation, but some options beyond the, the, the front five. Um, so while it would be nice to add somebody of Lopez's, uh, ability and make him your number two guy. Um, 
I, I don't think they do it at the cost of giving up Tristan Casas. Yeah, I agree with you there. And, and, you know, I think that the way it was described to me, this is before the Kluber signing. I just, just have not gotten the feeling that they're going for that ace controllable type, just because we've seen the trade market has basically been, you know, nothing. We've seen two moves basically of any consequence, uh, both involving catchers in a way, obviously Sean Murphy going to Atlanta and then the, uh, Moreno for Dalton Varsho swap between Arizona and Toronto. Really nothing involving pitching trade market-wise uh, at all. Understanding the trade market's uh, not moved at all. I'll let you go with this. Uh, we are, as you said, shockingly five weeks away from the beginning of spring training. It seems like it went by quick, but when they're this busy, uh, you know, that helps make our offseason go quick as, as people who cover the team. Justin Turner's here, Corey Kluber, Jolie Rodriguez, Chris Martin, Yoshida, Kenley Jansen, Rafael Devers is extended. Um, at the same time, a lot of guys going elsewhere, not just Bogarts, but also Evaldi, Hill, J.D. Martinez, Strom. A lot of turnover, uh, a different roster, the big move in Devers. As we sit here on January 6th, is this a successful Red Sox offseason in your mind? I, I don't think you can label it that because the loss of, um, of Bogarts is simply – too significant. Now, again, yeah. maybe they go out and make a move uh, like the one I suggested or, or some others that at least give them a, uh, a credible option at short or one of the other two positions that, that they can move in the middle of the diamond. But um, it, it's hard to label an offseason in which, you know, one of your uh, faces of the franchise, uh, a guy who is still an elite performer, a popular player, uh, a leader in the clubhouse, all those things. I don't see how you can lose Xander Bogarts and say, well, we're better than we were back on October 2nd or whenever the, mm -hmm. the season ended. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, but um, as I noted earlier, with some of the potential for the rotation, you can construct a scenario where this team is significantly better than last year if things go right. Now, the problem is that it's often difficult, if not impossible, when you have one of those, well, if this, this, and this happens, you don't often get all those things happening as you hope. Uh, right. You know, Maybe you get three out of four or four out of five. Um, I, I think depending on what they do here in the next five weeks, um, it's possible they could be a playoff contender, but you still have to right now rank them certainly behind uh, the, the Yankees and the Blue Jays and probably behind Tampa Bay. Uh, if you were to pick the division now, I, I would think it would be hard to have them any higher than fourth. But if they get to third, that might be good enough to contend for a playoff spot. Mm -hmm. and, and in the uh, wild, wild west that is the expanded playoffs, maybe that's enough to have a chance. Well, that's well McAdam, you know, we... the... but, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the fact that, you know, we're going to a more balanced schedule next year with we, we know all too well the struggles the Red Sox had within their division. They were horrendous against all divisional opponents. Um, they're going to play fewer of those games. They're going to play ridiculously, in my opinion, about a third of their schedule against the National League. Uh, they're even going to play a few more games against teams from the Central and West uh, to make up for the loss of games within the division, but uh, the the sheer fact that they're not going to play the Yankees, Blue Jays, and Rays as much as they did in years past 
um, that may in itself be enough for them to pick up a half dozen games or so right there. Right. Well, that's Sean McAdam. We appreciate the insight on always when you pop on the show. Uh, you can read him, obviously, at Boston Sports Journal and uh, follow him on Twitter. Um, Sean, we appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on.